you've listened to this whole podcast and, and nothing that I said made a lick of sense to you, but there was one little, what I call golden nugget in this, one little five second clip that I said that inspire you or help you find your next level of success, then listening to this whole hour podcast was worth it. Like you pulled a golden nugget out of that. And that's a golden nugget you can put in your tool belt, take with you the rest of your life. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. Linked insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of No Degree Podcast. I want to personally thank you for tuning in and supporting our show. If you haven't yet, hit that follow or subscribe button. I encourage you, don't keep this to yourself. Share these inspiring stories with your friends, invite them to subscribe, and connect with us on social media. So today I have on the laundromat millionaire, Dave Menz. How do you introduce yourself when you're on stage? (laughs) It's a great question. Well, the first thing I do is tell people I'm really humble. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Because everybody always makes fun of me for the laundromat millionaire moniker. But yeah, no, what I tell people is I'm just a regular old guy from Flint, Michigan. I grew up really poor. And I moved to Cincinnati with my family. My dad got his got a job, and our family moved here when I was in sixth grade. I've lived here ever since, but the truth is I was a born entrepreneur. So I was the kid that was selling candy and had a lemonade stand and cut grass and all the things that you probably did yourself too. You know, yeah. A lot of our stories are similar when we're kids because we have limited opportunities. And I grew up you know, looking for the right opportunity. I struggled into my early 30s and uh, found a local dumpy laundromat for sale, and the rest is history. So that's the that's wow. the quick version of my story. But yeah, I grew up super poor, which is which I always say is part of kind of my ambition to this day. You know, obviously I'm not poor anymore, but uh, I, I don't want anything to do with going back there. And I'm driven every day by the uh, there, there are two things really. Just sir, I believe we're all here on Earth to serve each other, to serve our communities. That's very important to me in my core. And the thing I love about the about business and capitalism is we can do that and provide for our families simultaneously through our businesses. And so I always tell people that a big part of my ambition nowadays is to make sure that my wife and children never know what my childhood was like. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. Now, if you could create a blueprint of your success to pass on to someone without a college degree, what would it look like? What would they do? What shouldn't they do? Yeah. You know, the beauty is as we sit here, talk about it today in late 2023 is the whole world is available to us. And I'm sure you understand that because of the internet. So all you have to do, I I really, truly believe this. This is not complicated. All you have to do is refuse to quit and be insanely curious. Yeah. I know that's a very simplistic approach, but I don't think we need to complicate it. Sure. I could get into P and L's and, you know, leverage and all these things that, that associate with business. But at the end of the day, I really believe those are the two core things. And if we're talking to someone like myself, when I was 15, 16 years old, that's what I would tell myself today. If I were speaking to myself then. I love it. And you said something great that it's not complicated. No. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking something simple is easy. It's simple. But it's hard. Like that's one thing that we won't sugarcoat. It's hard. Yes. A lot of people complicate too many things and they're like, you need to do X, Y, Z. But the core fundamental is you need to put in the work and you need to be curious. And through that, you're going to learn things along the way. And if you keep going, things will work out. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I mean, I probably had a few people in my life tell me that when I was younger, but most people told me the opposite of that, that it's too risky and you're going to lose everything. And, you know, you'll, you know, it's a pipe dream. It's a Hollywood type of environment. And, you know, you didn't go to Harvard. So who do you think you are? You barely graduated high school kind of mentality. And if they didn't say those things, they insinuated those things to me. And what I want the world to know is that it actually isn't that complicated. It is really simple, but that doesn't make it easy. You hit the nail on the head. And that's one of the things I tell people about even the laundromat industry, I say, look, this is not a complicated industry, especially compared to restaurants and a lot of other type of industries out there, but that doesn't make it easy. So, you know, give it the respect that it deserves. You got to put the work in. But at the end of the day, if you're curious and you're always looking for what I call the next level, you know, whatever that is, and it doesn't have to be a giant jump up an entire staircase. It can just be one step up a staircase at a time. And even when you get knocked back down a couple steps, you just get back up and keep going. And that's the refuse to quit. You will win. It's a matter of time. I can almost guarantee it. I personally think that the Harvard grad probably wouldn't do well running a laundromat. They'd probably do forecasts and run the SWOT analysis and do all that and then forget to talk to the customer and ask them what they want. Well, you know, that's interesting because I assume you're not in the laundromat industry. I don't know this for sure, but that's that's very insightful of you because that's exactly right. 
And one of the things I tell people is I believe laundromats are one of the best businesses in America, but it's not for everybody. And then, of course, everybody asks me, who, it's, who is it for? And what I tell them is the best fits for this is someone that has grit and a lack of sexy, meaning they don't care. Like, you know, if you go to a dinner party and tell somebody you're, you're an entrepreneur, they're going to be really impressed by that, especially nowadays. But the next question out of their mouth is, what type of business are you in? And if you tell them you're a real estate investor or you're whatever, you know, they're going to be impressed by these things. Even if you're a digital marketing agency, that sounds really cool, right? If you tell me on a laundromat, the next word out of their mouth is, oh, because they're not impressed. They never will be impressed. And if you need that for yourself to be driven to success, like you're not going to find it. Your parents won't be impressed. Your employees won't be impressed. Yeah. No one will be impressed by that. So just prepare yourself for that. If you're okay with that, the opportunity is immense. Because because that in the, our industry is that way, it actually detracts a lot of people from the industry. There are a lot of entrepreneurs that actually need that. They need other people to look up to them and worship them and be like, wow, you're so smart. And you started yeah. Facebook and you know all these different things. And at the end of the day, that's just not important to me. Now, that's good. That's good. So it detracts the type of people who wouldn't be good at it because at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, it's all about the customer. It's not about sexiness. It's all about delivering value to a group of people. Yeah, it is. It's, all, it's what it really is, is. And I know we throw around this term really you know, flippantly nowadays in the entrepreneurship world, but it really is all about community. I mean, if you just focus on serving people's needs and the beauty of the laundromat industry is you are serving a vital need. Like, like a laundromat is a vital community resource in every community. And there are, you know, communities or what we call sub-markets, you know, five, 10 mile radius around a store or something like that, where, you know, all the laundromats in that market are pretty terrible and not doing a good job. And the truth is that all it takes is somebody with a little bit of grit, a little bit of acquisitiveness and a refusal to give up. And they come in and they, you know, if you're, if you're not well capitalized, you can, you can leverage and you can build something. It'll take time. You have to be patient. You have to refuse to quit the things I talked about. But the opportunity is immense because it's the old laws of supply and demand, right? Once again, yeah. back to this is not complicated stuff. The laws of supply and demand are undefeated. They always win. And so if you go into a market in any industry where the laws of supply and demand are not tipped in your favor, they're oversaturated with whatever, pizza shops, laundromats, whatever yeah. it is, I don't care how good of a business person you are, you're going to struggle. Because the market is oversaturated. And if you go into a market that's underserved with tremendous need and you're solving not only a, a want, but a need in that community, meaning clean laundry, sanitary conditions, things like that, which is what we do. I mean, the market will reward you like at a yeah. level you don't even understand. Yes, it will. So what's the salary range for someone who wants to own a laundromat? What have you seen? And what are like the averages? Well, I guess it depends on how you define salary. But I mean, if you talk about like the ROI, the investment value of owning a laundromat, um, a lot of people own, own laundromats and don't operate them. Typically, they operate them in the beginning and then tend to back out of the business. It's the old e-myth, right? Work on your business, yeah. not in your business type of thing or vice versa. But you know, pretty conservatively, you can expect a 20 to 30% return on investment cash on cash annually. Depending on how you acquire the store, you know, offline before we started recording, you were talking about finding a rundown dumpy laundromat that was basically a hot mess. And a lot of times you can acquire those for very little to no money down. Little sometimes as little as zero down. Yeah. And if you find one in a market that's underserved and you go in there and you understand leverage, even if you don't have a lot of your own capital, and this can take a grind by the way, so don't let me make this sound easy. But if you do those things, a lot of times you can you can experience what's called an infinite return. Meaning I have, you know, I have four, I have a chain of four laundromats in Cincinnati, Ohio, and one of those four I acquired literally with no money down. Now it took me four or five years of blood, sweat, and tears and building sweat equity and things like that to get it to a profitable business. But today I sit here today and it's a very lucrative business and I've never put a dime of my own cash in it. That's what's defined as an infinite return. And so it, you know, I don't want to suggest that all laundromats are like that and get people all excited with hyperbole and things like that, but it's a very real thing. And so that kind of runs the gamut. And, and of course, there are people that run laundromats that don't make any money, that get a zero return because they're terrible at what they do and they don't even try and they don't care about the community and there's no effort and they've kind of quit even though they haven't sold the business, uh, so to speak. But yeah, it's a lot of people don't realize how lucrative a business it can be. You mentioned the 20, 30%. So what have you seen in terms of like, do people buy laundromats for 20K? Do they buy for 200K? Like what's a realistic amount that you've seen? Yeah, they, they even run the gamut. In fact, there's a lot of multi-million dollar operations out there. It just depends on where you're buying it. You know, 
I'm sure you understand like economic cycles yeah. and there's also what's called the, the life cycle of a business. You know, when you build a new Taco Bell, you know, it's, yeah. it's 2 million bucks or whatever it is to build this business. And then they, if you watch, they typically don't reinvest a whole lot into it over 15, 20 years and the business kind of runs through a cycle and then they either tear the building down and build a new one or they, um, you know, let it run down into the dirt, sell it for pennies on the dollar and go retire. There's this life cycle of a business and it really depends on where you buy that business in the life cycle. But if you buy it at the bottom of the life cycle where it essentially has really no value, that's when you can get it for, you know, literally peanuts. Let's, you know, anywhere from, let's say anything under $50,000, basically peanuts. But if you were to buy a turnkey business that was built two years ago that has a million dollars of brand new equipment and is generating $50,000 a week in, in uh, revenue, um, which is kind of the higher end laundromats in yeah. New York City and Chicago and big LA, places like that. You know, those those businesses, you know, they're typically selling right now, post-COVID, they're selling for anywhere from two on the lower end to sometimes as high as seven or eight X of net operating income. And so wow. it depends on where you buy it. If you buy a very turnkey business in an amazing market where you've kind of, you know, captured the market share and you're you're buying a ready-made business, as they say, then you're going to pay a premium for that. But there's also not a lot of risk. Requires a lot of capital, but there's not a lot of risk there because it's a proven model. So yeah. that, that's one of the, that's actually one of the beauties of the laundromat industry too, is we are literally talking about two ends of the spectrum. And then if I were to say the average laundromat, I mean, the average laundromat probably sells for hundred to $200,000, maybe 250,000, okay. something like that. But it's all okay. based on the, on the net operating income. Hey, are you frustrated with your job search? Are you sending out resume after resume with no callbacks? If so, I have some good news. After three years of helping over 400 people land jobs at places like Meta, HubSpot, Google, Twitter, Amazon, Tesla, Disney, Sony, just to name a few, I created a course. In the Get Your Dream Career course, you'll discover best practices for creating a resume that stands out, and you'll also learn how to optimize your job search. It covers every aspect of the job, including resumes, application strategy, networking, LinkedIn profile optimization, interview guidance, and salary negotiation. You will also get a behind-the-scenes view of how recruiters use LinkedIn to find candidates. And of course, you'll get resume and cover letter templates. Get one step closer to your dream job. Sign up at the link in the notes below. So now let's take it back. How was high school like for you and what do you <laughs> want to be in high school? Yeah, when I was in high school, I always wanted to be a business owner. I didn't know any more than that. I didn't certainly didn't dream of owning a laundromat, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, but yeah, when I was in high school, I was terrible at school. I was terrible. I didn't have a great memory just naturally. Um, so I wasn't good at memorization, which is a lot of what school is. If a subject or a teacher uh, piqued my interest, then I would dive all in and typically be one of the best students in the class. But if it didn't and I didn't see any, and then I was emotionally immature, I'll admit that back then. But if I was, if I didn't see any value in this in the real world, like when am I ever going to use math, you know, <laughs> type of thing, like we never use math, of course, but then I, I didn't give it any effort whatsoever. I totally blew it off and I got in trouble and I was the class cloud and that kind of stuff. So it actually ran the spectrum from class to class. But if I was at an accounting class, ironically enough, or a, and I'm not a numbers person at all, but I was in an entrepreneurship class or even, you know, this is going to crack you up. But back in the 90s, they were, I graduated from high school in 94. And back in the early 90s, the, the, all the talk was this thing that the world was creating. And it was called the information superhighway. That was what they originally coined as the internet. And it was being created as we were in high school. And they had told us that everything is eventually going to be on a computer. And the most important skill you can learn is typing. Well, nobody knew what typing was. Like nobody had, you know, typewriters. I mean, we had them, but not, not in your home, right? You didn't have those in your home type of thing. And so I took a typing class and I was the number one student in the class because the teacher did a very good job of explaining to me why this was practical to the rest of my life. And I was all in and that was, the, I still am that way to this day, which I believe is what makes me a great entrepreneur is because, you know, if you can convince me that this is important either to the world or to my family, like get out of my way, good luck competing with me because you're in big trouble trying to compete with me in that environment. But if I don't see any practical, actionable value behind this, like you won't get five seconds of my time. And that's how I approach high school, which I don't recommend. Not what I tell yeah. my kids to do <laughs> by yeah. any means, uh, but but it's who I am. It got me to where I am today. I, barely, I went to a very average public high school. Um, I think there was 
250 in our graduating class, and I think I graduated in around 200. So I was below average for sure, even in a very average public school. Tried a year at community college, did okay. Realized that I hated it as much as I hated high school and uh, never looked back. You mentioned you're always an entrepreneur. What were some of the things you did to make money in high school? Yeah, a lot of them are the stereotypical things, but the funniest story I'll tell you I wrote about in my book uh, Blonder Matt Millionaire is the name of the book, by the way. But uh, one of the things I wrote about in my book, I think it was actually in like early high school, maybe even late middle school, is I don't know if you ever saw the now and later candies. They, yeah. They come in little like I remember. cubes. Yeah. And there's like six pieces in a pack. And I would go to the, I didn't have a driver's license. So I was either eighth grade or a freshman. And I would ride my bike to the local uh, pharmacy and we would buy candy up there. And those packs and now and later sold for 10 cents. And I would buy as many of them as I had, which was like maybe a couple bucks at best. And I would yeah. take them to school with me in my pocket. Well, our school lunch was $1.75. And so every parent gave their kid two bucks to buy lunch, right? And so after yeah. lunch, what did everyone in the school have in their pocket? They all had a quarter in their pocket. And I sold these 10 cents packs of now and laters for a quarter. And I made so much money, it's ridiculous. In fact, I started having it's it's such a great entrepreneurial story because I actually understood all this. I understood laws of supply and demand. I understood we all wanted sweets. I understood we all had a quarter in our pocket. I don't know that I could conceptualized it, but I understood the concept. And that's probably the funniest one because I got myself in big trouble and I ended up carving out an old textbook and gluing the pages together and, and where it would hold 20 packs of now and laters in my books. And I had, I had a hidden stash because I got in trouble for it and all these types of things. But um, I mean, I, I did the stereotypical cutting grass and delivering newspapers and lemonade stands and selling candy and things like that too. But that was probably the funniest story just because I got in a lot of trouble for it and I, re I refused to quit. I was like, I'm not doing anything wrong. <laughs> I love it. You really understood it. So yeah. now you're in community college, you drop out. What came next? Like what was the next move? Yeah. Well, part of the reason that I dropped out, I actually got really good grades in community college. I actually did better in community college than I did in high school, ironically enough. Uh, but I realized it wasn't for me. And part of the reason I dropped out is because a friend of a friend that I had grown up with, their mom worked at the local telephone company here in Cincinnati. And they would hire entry-level positions. And I'm not I'm not sure how close to my age you are, but I think you're yeah. quite a bit younger. But I don't know if you remember 411. Do you remember that? Yeah. Okay. So people would call 411 and ask for a phone number. That was an entry-level position. You were just an operator. And they would basically hire anybody that could pass a, you know, an average communications test, anyone that knew how to talk to people. And I had been talking my whole life, so that wasn't a problem for me. And uh, I had this opportunity to get this entry-level position at the local telephone company, and uh, I was kind of didn't want to be in college to begin with. And I was like, you know what? I can make a career path out of that. And so at the end of the school year, I dropped out, passed this skills test that they give. My friend's mom made a recommendation for me at the local telephone company. I got my foot in the door, and I ended up working there for 17 years. I uh, was promoted. 17 yeah, years, okay. I was promoted five times um, over that and learned tons of skills, marketing, customer service, management. And when I left the company, I was actually a lineman. I was the guy that climbed the telephone poles and fixed the phone lines and stuff like that when I left. And uh, I left to become an entrepreneur full-time. But yeah, that was that was actually why I dropped out of school. I kind of had a another path. I was like, you know what? Rather than keeping going down this path, I think I'm just going to jump in because I was 19 years old. And I was like, I think I'm just going to jump in this entry-level position and let them teach me the skills and pay me at the same time. And uh, it worked out. It worked out amazing for me. So you started on the phones. Mm -hmm. Where did you go next and how long did you stay on the phones? Well, I was in that job for about a year and a half, and it was designed for you to not be there very long. You would either usually get fired or quit or lose your job or get promoted pretty quickly. So I was there for about a year and a half. I got promoted to a, a phone sales position. So rather than you know giving 411 phone numbers out, which was pretty basic stuff, I got promoted to the sales office, and I would sell caller. This is obviously I'm dating myself. This is 25 years ago now, but I would sell things like you know options and features like phone lines and voicemail and caller ID and call waiting. And we were on like a commission by if people called in and asked about these products and services. Um, and we would sell hardware, telephones. If you want to buy a cordless phone, we would sell that to you and ship it out and do things like that. And that was actually a pretty well-paying job for 21 years old, uh, yeah. which is what I was at that point. I ended up uh, having a daughter with my girlfriend at the time. We ended up getting married a few years later and divorced shortly after that. But I worked in that position for probably five or six years and then evolved into more of a technical trade with like, um, that was kind of as the internet, high speed internet was starting to become a thing. That was when we were evolving from dial up to not dial up. 
type of internet. I got some good training in that, worked in that in that position for a while, worked in entry-level management for a little while, and then went to the technical program, which was like a certificate program where they teach you how to actually work on the phone lines and things like that. Did marketing for a little bit and then went outside and worked on the phone lines. And I did that for six or seven years, probably the last six or seven years of my career. So it was it was very interesting because when I was very green. I didn't really have any skills whatsoever. And by the time I left, I had gotten such amazing training and thing in the art of customer service. I mean, people don't give people that are real true artists in the world of customer service and and communication skills and things like that. They don't give them the credit that they deserve. Um, but I got some amazing, I mean, we were, I don't know if you remember like JD Power and Associates Awards and things like that. Our call center would get, my first call center I worked in, we would get JD Power and Associate Awards all the time for the number one customer service in the whole country among telephone companies and things like that. So the training, the expertise, the mentorship that I got was just through the roof. And the funny thing is the whole time I was being trained to be an entrepreneur, I mean, I was wired to be an entrepreneur. But I didn't have the skills. And in this position, I didn't know it, but I was learning all these different skills that were amazingly important to me in my journey of entrepreneurship. And within the first year or two of actually owning a business, I realized how much Cincinnati Bell was the name of the company here in Cincinnati. And I realized how much they had helped me to become the entrepreneur that I am today. I did not know any of that. I'm not anywhere near that smart. Yeah. <laughs> and I love what you said. I love what you said that even entrepreneurs need training. Oh, a lot of times we look at this, oh, this 18 to 22 year old entrepreneur, this young entrepreneur. And a lot of people don't realize, they're like, I can never work a job. A lot of people don't realize is you learn a lot about operations. You learn a lot about how things work. You learn a lot about what they do well, what they don't do well. So that when you are ready to be an entrepreneur, you're like, hey, I'm going to do this this way. Or I'm not going to do it that way because there's a better way. And you're getting paid by someone else yes. instead of learning it by yourself and paying the cost. I honestly, for somebody that didn't, I mean, I went to college, but clearly didn't graduate, didn't even come close. For somebody that doesn't have a formal education, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. And I didn't need to stay there for 17 years. I might probably yeah. could have stayed five or six and gotten the same type of thing. But at the time, you know, I'd always wanted to own my own business. But when I got this career path to build a middle-class career for this poor kid from Flint, Michigan, honestly, I'd kind of given up on my dream yeah. of owning my own business someday. And so I thought this was my life. I thought this was my career. I thought I would just keep moving up as far as I could, as long as I could. And in the middle of my career, I just realized this wasn't what I wanted to do until I was, you know, 60, 70 years old. And so luckily, I figured that out in my early 30s when I had plenty of time to pivot to my true dream. But yeah, I couldn't I couldn't write a better script than I would if anyone has the opportunity to get on the job training and be paid for it at the same time, you'll be shocked how many of those skills and even micro skills that you will learn when you get into the entrepreneurship world. And make no mistake, there are a lot of skills that are important in the world of entrepreneurship and if you don't have them, you're going to learn them through the school of hard knocks and if you don't learn them at all, your business is never going to reach the level that it could have. It's one of those things that like Online, people will talk about how owning a business is the best thing in the world and you don't have a boss, you don't have this. But the fact is, you always have a boss. The boss is your customer. The you boss is right. your the balance at the end of your account. And <laughs> the boss is you having no money or you owing money and you coming out negative. And these are things that we realistically have to look at or else like I've seen some people and then they have to go back. And one of the things for me is, I wish I had quit my job later, looking back, when I had a little more capital saved up, I had a little more runway, and I just had a little more experience. And maybe I should I should have done it a little on the side and focused on making the first dollar or the first $10. Because once you make that, it's a lot easier to make the next person. But when you're making zero, it, you're really figuring a lot of things out. I mean, regardless of whether we go to formal school, formal college, university, or we go to the quote-unquote school of hard knocks, or we do an apprenticeship, or whatever words you want to use, you're going to need to be trained. You weren't born for this. That's not how this works. We all learn. I mean, we learn by stubbing our toes and making mistakes. Yeah, you can learn in the classroom. It's certainly not the place for me to learn, but for some people, that works really well. But you're going to have to learn. You're going to have to get your education somewhere. And you're, even if you get a formal education and go out into the entrepreneurship world, you're going to learn real quick there's a difference in theory and reality, too. So you're going to get kicked around an awful lot 
<laughs> and it's just a process, which going back full circle, why well, I said in the beginning, you just got to refuse to quit. When I first owned my own business, the first decision I made is I'll never quit. They're going to have to kill me. I'll never, I don't care if I go bankrupt. There's nothing in me that will quit. I will never quit coming. It's back to that so, good old fashioned grit, right? <laughs> yeah. So now 17 years. Yeah. You decided to walk away. What made you decide to walk away? What were the circumstances? Can you go into that? Yeah. So the initial thing, first of all, I want to be clear. There was about a five-year journey where I actually owned my own business. So about year 12 or 13 was when I actually had the opportunity to own my own business. And what happened is a combination of two things. And so I actually worked, my point is I worked my full-time job for about four or five years and ran my business as a quote-unquote side hustle. Uh, Worked about 90 to 100 hours a week for those four or five years which is brutal and I'll never forget it. It was a great life lesson, but man, if you cannot do that, that'd yeah. be good too. Cause that was rough. <laughs> uh, but, I can imagine. but yeah, so basically what happened is a couple things. I had a very, uh, I wouldn't say cushy, but I had a very good middle-class union job with a great pension and all these, you know, Cadillac benefits and all these things. And I was young, I was in my early thirties and a union contract, I was a union job and a union contract passed. And in that they removed our pension and they said, you no longer have a pension. And something just clicked in me that day. I think it was part of, partly I was so young. I've probably been there 10 years. And I said, you know what? This is no longer a career. This is a job. If I don't have a pension, I mean, I had a 401k, but I didn't have a pension. And I said, if they just took our pension away forever and ever, amen, and I'm never going to have a pension, I'm never going to have a retirement, then I'm only relying on social security. Then like that was one of the, I think that was one of the attractions to me of having a corporate career if you will. And as soon as I realized that, it was actually really freeing because I was like, well, if I don't have a pension as an entrepreneur and I don't have a pension as an employee, which no one really does anymore, then what, you know, what little risk I was, I would have been taking by leaving this great corporate career behind. I'm, you know, I just looked at it as, you know what, all I'm doing is punching the clock, trading an hour of my time for an hour, hour's pay. And that's that. So that kind of spurred the five-year-old Dave Menz in me to go chase my entrepreneurship dream. The first thing I did is I went home literally that night, talked to my wife, said, you remember when we were dating? I said, I was one of my business. She said, yeah. I said, I'm serious. I'm ready. Like, let's do this. And she was like, you know, me and her are both very, okay, well, we got to put together a plan because we didn't have any money. We had three young kids at home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we had a very nice middle-class life. We had a nice little home with some equity and, and we didn't really have much debt, but I said, you know what? We need to prepare ourselves to own a business. And I don't know why, but I always just in my mind saw myself as buying an existing business that was a retail business. I don't, people ask me why. I honestly don't know why. And the whole world was available to me. And that was what I thought I had to do for some reason. And so I thought, well, I'm going to need some money. I'm going to need some seed capital here. And so over the next three or four years, me and my wife, we lived well below our means. She went to grad school and got her, she was a school teacher. She went to grad school and got her master's degree. So she got a pretty good bump in pay. Um, I was in a situation where I had been, that was the last promotion I had gotten at Cincinnati Bell. So I got about a 50% increase in pay on my last promotion. And instead of decreasing our lifestyle, we just took all that extra income and just plowed it away into a savings account. And that was our business fund, so to speak. So it took four or five years, but over the course of four or five years, we saved up, I think it was about $30,000 which wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to get started. And I started looking at businesses for sale and I found a local laundromat for sale a couple miles from my home. And it was, you know, in pretty bad shape. It was like $80,000 to buy it. And it was actually losing money. But I lived in that community my whole life for the most part. I understood the community. It used to be a thriving business and it had just been neglected and run down. And I didn't know much about business or about the laundromat industry. But what I did know is if I fix this up and made it nice, I understood the laws of supply and demand, and I could look around and see that there wasn't any nice laundromats in this community. And my community, which I lived in, was growing, was booming. And so I was like, okay, I don't know a whole lot, but this seems like there's a there's a problem here, there's a solution. And if I buy this rundown dumpy laundromat, and I'm very type A, so I knew if I bought it, I would fix it up and make it nice, that it seemed like I'd make money. And I honestly didn't have any more <laughs> knowledge than that of how to buy my first store, but I saw it as limited risk because we had some cash to put in. We took out a small SBA loan to buy our first laundromat. I knew I could run it on the side, which wasn't ideal, but I could do it for a few years. And once I got the business profitable and making money, I thought, you know, the way I looked at it is worst case scenario, this will be a nice little side hustle for me. And we might make a few thousand dollars a month. And, you know, I never thought about it leaving my corporate career. I just thought this will build that pension for me. This will build that nest egg for me. 
And I never dreamed it would turn into what it has today, of course. But that was how we got started in the industry. And it was really just a combination of my employer kind of booting me out of the nest without realizing they were doing it. And that re, um, rebringing that, uh, entrepreneurial, uh, itch to the surface that I had as a kid and I had kind of repressed. How much did you end up buying the laundromat for? Yeah. So we actually bought it for what they were asking for. And it was actually, I know it sounds like a lot of money for a dumpy laundromat that loses money, but I, I found a mentor. I found a local equipment distributor in Cincinnati that helped me kind of put together a PL and said, yeah, this is actually a pretty good price. And here's why. And we went through all, all of those types of things. We ended up buying it for $85,000. Um, we put almost all of our money down and the little money we didn't put down, we spent, you know, trying to fix up the business within the first few months. And we put a whole bunch of sweat equity into the store. And within three or four or five months, it was making a couple thousand dollars a month profit. Now, the problem was we had kind of put a whole lot of lipstick on a pig. <laughs> like that wasn't going to work for 20 years kind of thing, if you know what I mean. I was like, okay, this is really cool. I've got a little breathing room. We built up a little bit of a nest egg from that over the next six months or so. Had a little bit of savings. We were like, okay, we can make something happen with this. And I was talking to my distributor one day and he was like, you know, all this equipment, which is a big part of a laundromat, of course, all this equipment is pretty old and you know you can keep fixing it, but it's going to keep breaking. It's kind of near the end of its life cycle. He was like, you need to start the business process, the sales cycle over again, and you need to start to reinvigorate the store other than just painting things and putting lipstick on a pig. And so we started purchasing new commercial laundry equipment, which is very expensive to buy. And we took out a small business loan for some equipment, put some new equipment in our store. And long story short, over the next couple of years, we ended up buying a second store. And um, those two stores within about three years actually replaced my entire income from my job. It was a very, I call it a stair-stepped approach because I didn't have a lot of money and I could borrow a little bit, but I could only really borrow what the business could support. So nobody was like going to give me a half million dollars to just gut everything and put all new equipment in. I had to stair-step it. And so I would take a step up the staircase, borrow 50, 80, 100 grand, put a bunch of new equipment in, raise the prices, fix up the bathroom, you know, put a new toilet in, that kind of stuff. And then business would increase. Profitability would increase. Revenue would increase. And I would take that and reinvest and back into the next step in the process and say, okay, a year or two from now, I'm going to put another 50 or 100,000. And I could afford that. I could afford to support the notes and things like that because cash flow was improving. And, you know, one day it eventually caught up to me and I just was like, wow, I actually don't really need to do a whole lot more of these stores. And they're mostly, if not all new equipment at this point. And yeah, I have some debt to service, but the business can easily service the equipment and replace my income. And I think it was about four years after I bought my first store that we actually had our third laundromat under contract. And I quit my job about two weeks before we closed on that third store. And that was really what kind of shot us out of a cannon. When I went from working 90 to 100 hours a week between my corporate job and running my businesses to working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, but it all being in my business. That was when my business really started to take off. How much is a machine? Because people think like they look <laughs> at the ones in their house and this is different. Oh, yeah. This is a machine that's going to run three, four, five, six, ten, twenty 10, 20 times a day and has to run for years and has to keep working and doesn't get the same breaks that a regular machine does? Yeah, that's a great question. So the answer is it kind of runs the spectrum. On the low end of the spectrum, there are some, they call them commercial grade equipment, but there are some commercial washing machines that are really just a little bit better than residential machines, but they happen to be able to vend. You know, you can pay with a card or a phone app or coins or whatever you want. There's a way to vend the machine, but the quality of them isn't drastically different than a residential machine. And they, you can imagine the life cycle of those isn't very long in a laundromat environment, uh, five or six years if you're lucky. But those on the lower end are going to run a couple thousand dollars for like just something you probably shouldn't even bother with kind of situation. And then the true industrial grade equipment that can wash like seven, eight, nine, ten loads of laundry at one time. I mean, these machines will run fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars for one washer. That's just a washer. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, those machines are true commercial grade. They're made to put in a laundromat. They're made to run all day, every day for 20 years, and they will just keep on churning and rarely break down on you. And, you know, if you get if you buy a machine that size, I mean, you can vend it for, you know, $10, $12, $13, $15. Every time somebody runs it, you'll get 10 to 15 bucks, something like that. So, I mean, the, the economics make sense. But, yeah, I, I have people ask me all the time when I'm in my stores, you know, customers, they're like, what does a machine like that cost? Because everybody's really curious. And I'm like, to be honest with you, what I pay for that machine, you could buy a car. And they're like, 
what? Really? Because <laughs> they think they cost like maybe three or four thousand dollars. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. So, and then there's the infrastructure. You know, buying the equipment is one thing, but the plumbing and the electric and uh, the sewer lines and the drain lines and the gas lines. I mean, this is commercial grade stuff. This is four six inch lines in some cases. I mean, you can for a small laundromat, you can easily spend a few hundred thousand dollars just building out the space before you put any equipment in it. And that's part of the value associated with an existing laundromat to kind of bring this full circle. So when I bought my that dumpy laundromat, the equipment was in pretty bad shape, but the infrastructure was actually in really good shape. And it had been a laundromat for about 30 years. And that was one of the things my distributor, who became my mentor, taught me as Dave, like the infrastructure alone in this facility and the fact that it's been a laundromat for 30 years and it has some customers coming despite how poorly it's run, that's worth $150,000, $200,000 to you. And that's why you should just shut up and pay 80 grand. And I didn't know any of this, but I was just like, okay, I hope you're right. <laughs> uh, type of thing. But the other end of the spectrum is there are people out there, and I just built a $2 million laundromat just a year and a half ago, um, which is a 9,000 square foot, just one of the nicest laundromats in the country. And that's the other end of the spectrum. And those stores, they're very profitable and they serve usually four or five different needs in the community. And they're serving you know thousands of people a month, really making a big difference in your community. What'd you do to turn around that first store? The first thing we did is, like I said, lipstick on a pig, a lot of paint. One of the first things my distributor taught me is it's amazing how far a gallon of paint will go. And if you're willing to paint, even if you're not that good at it, if you're willing to paint, a gallon of paint, you know, this is 15 years ago, what, 20 bucks and something like that. And so he was like, you know, that that little bit, I think I put that 30K I told you we had, I think we put about 20 down on buying the business. So we had about 10. And so I was like, okay, how far can I make this 10 go? Well, one thing for sure, I'm going to do everything myself. And uh, I didn't know how to do plumbing or electric, things like that, but the infrastructure was okay. So it was a lot of just cleaning. The store was actually just really dirty. It was nasty. It was a lot of cleaning and a lot of painting. And then we had our equipment distributor service department come in and they fixed all the equipment. So 80% of the machines were broken down. And I just said, come in and make everything work. Whatever we got to do, make it work, send me the bill uh, type of thing. And that was the first thing we did. Just, Just we looked at the business from a very functional standpoint. It needs to be clean. It needs to be safe. It needs to be bright, which paint can do that. And the equipment needs to work. Like it needs to be functional. And, you know, the funny thing is when you talk to a lot of people in the laundromat industry, they'll talk about those are all the keys to success. Clean, safe, and bright. That's all you need to be successful. And the truth is that's actually a narrative I kind of really hate because that's the bottom. That's our floor. And if you're below the floor, getting to the floor isn't really something to brag about. You know what I mean? My tagline is kind of with our laundromat millionaire platform and website and brand and stuff is all about what we call elevating the industry into what I call a modernized laundromat. But the first thing I had to do is take this place that was below the floor and raise it up to the point where we could at least get it profitable and functional and safe and things like that. And that was one of those steps up the staircase. And then the next step up the staircase was obviously starting to put new new equipment in and kind of building a little bit more for the future. And what I learned about that is, is I borrowed money and made investments in new equipment, which was really cool and shiny. And you put two new washers in and people just freak out because they haven't seen anything new for 20 years. And they're just like, oh my gosh, it's like if you come home with a new Cadillac, you know, you're, I mean, your wife is like, what just happened? <laughs> well, that's how the community kind of reacted. And because they're new and sparkly and shiny and bright and they have new controls and all these fancy things, you can, of course, charge a premium for them. And so that allows you another step up the staircase is kind of raising your prices slowly but surely as your value proposition raises. And so that's just a, a slow evolution up the process, the, the supply chain, if you will, and just getting to a point where, you know, I, don't, I always say I don't know that I like to use the, the analogy or the metaphor of the staircase, but I always tell people I don't know that there's a top to the staircase. Like I'm still climbing, <laughs> uh, but I'm nowhere near the, the bottom now. And so now a big part of what we do is try to teach other people how to do those things too. Now, you acquired a couple of stores. Where would you say which year did you really get it? Like you're like, all right, I understand. I'm still learning, but now I'm really an expert at this. I really know the ins and outs. Like I can identify a store. I know how much I should buy, whether or not it's worth buying at at what price. I would say I probably had a couple different epiphanies in there. One of them was the functionality, like the, the functionality of clean, safe, bright, those kind of things like I talked about. And I thought there was a point where I thought that was success. Like I was making money. I wasn't losing money. I wasn't going to go bankrupt. My wife wasn't going to leave me. Everything was going to be okay. My kids weren't going to starve. You know, that was kind of the bottom. And I thought that was success. And then once again, back to the inquisitiveness in me and the, and the better tomorrow than yesterday is kind of my motto in life. 
of whether I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a Christian, you know, whatever it is, whatever things are important to me in life and business is one of those things. I just want to strive to always be better tomorrow than I was yesterday. And so that's my mentality in business. And once you reach a certain level, that even if you think that's success, if you have that inquisitiveness and that grit, you're going to grind. You're going to say, I know I think I've arrived, but I'm confident that I haven't. And so I need to go find that next level. And sometimes that means leaving your network behind and finding a new network. It means putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. It means paying for coaching and mentorship and listening to podcasts and you know investing in reading and books and your time and resources and things like that. And as you do that, you're always going to find new levels. Well, I would say that was step one was realizing that what I thought was my ceiling for this business was actually the floor. That was functional. And then I got to another level where I realized we evolved from being what we call an unattended laundromat, which means the store is just there. People come in and pay to use the machines, but there's not an employee. We would have just a contractor come by once in the morning, once in the afternoon, and they would just clean the store is all they would do. And they'd be there as, as little amount of time as possible. And they would invest in the, you know, they would clean the store and everything. And then they would go back into it and they would leave and come back the next day. So in that process, I realized, you know what, the more often my employees are here at the store, the better experience my customers get. And that was kind of a step up the the staircase, if you will, because I realized, hmm, rather than this being a functional commodity type of business, I think I'm evolving into a service-oriented business. Like, yes, the floor was still there. You have to have machines at work and all that stuff. But, huh, I realized the more that I put someone in my store, because we evolved from just come and clean and leave, to, okay, come and clean and help people. And I tell you what, uh, why don't you stay a couple extra hours and we'll pay you for four hours instead of two. And I realized every time I did that, that my customers got a better experience. And so I shifted my business model to more of a service-oriented model. And then that eventually grew into, we went from what we call unattended stores to fully attended stores. We eventually grew to the point where we had staff on duty all times. And we were able to raise the prices because we delivered a better value proposition and there was someone there to help you. And it was always clean, not just clean when we showed up, but it was always clean. We were always working on those things. From there, I shifted again to another point of what I call a full service laundry center, which means you have your unattended store, then you have your attended store. And then we said, well, if we're going to have staff on duty all the time, you know, there are vacuums and there are gaps in in, uh, how busy they are at different times for cleaning and things like that. So what if we started offering a drop-off laundry service, and which is what it, I know you in New York, you know what it is, but a lot of people don't. It's where people bring their laundry and they drop it off to your employees and you actually wash, dry, fold it for them. They pay you a premium and then they come and pick it up, you know, typically the next day or something like that. And I realized, hmm, now I can open up a whole new revenue stream, which can help pay for some of this labor. And as I started to do that, it's called vertical integration, right? So now instead of just having self-serve, Now I have employees and I can raise my self-serve prices and now I can become a full-service laundry center. And then about three or four years later, there was another epiphany where I realized, okay, I already have the staff. We already know how to professionally do laundry. What if we got a truck and went and picked it up instead of people having to bring it to us? What if we went to their home or business and got it from them? That's another, it's the good, better, best business model, right? And so I thought, you know, this is probably 2016. I thought, well, man, I mean, we we already have a staff. We actually had some management in place and we had some trainers that would train people and they would do interviewing and they would do hiring and firing. And we had built, you know, an employee handbook and, you know, some there was a business there versus just collecting coins and fixing machines. And I realized one day, you know, there must be something else to this. So I bought a truck and I naively thought, all I got to do is buy a truck, go pick up the laundry. Everything else we already know how to do, right? This can't be that hard. And uh, four years later, I lost several hundred thousand dollars trying to figure out how to actually scale this pickup and delivery business. The good news was that there was a huge demand. I was right about that. People wanted this service. They would pay a premium for it. Where I was wrong is I couldn't just pay the average attendant whatever they were making per hour and say, hey, just do the laundry and get it done whenever you get done. I had to build a completely different infrastructure and scalable systems and business model around the mathematics associated with productivity. And you know how much do you get paid and what is your bonus structure and how does that incentivize you and the psychology behind that. And that took me literally four or five years. I mean, we literally just kind of perfected that if there's such a thing, probably in the last three years, <laughs> if I'm honest. And so what I tell people is there's still people today running laundromats that are unattended. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? You can have 100 laundromats and do really well for yourself unattended, have some contractors or a cleaning crew clean the store. That's what I call the commodity-based 
mindset. And, and I don't mean to talk down on it because there's nothing wrong with that business model. But with that business model, you're going to be in a situation where you know, you're going to need to scale through leverage and you're going to need to keep borrowing money because the infrastructure is very expensive. You have to always be investing in hundreds of thousands of dollars in equipment. Well, when I got to SOAR 4 and I realized the full-service business model and I launched the pickup and delivery and I built systems and processes and management and training and all those things, I literally haven't bought another store or any new washers and dryers until I built this new store a year and a half ago for five and a half years. All I did is I was opt- I used the term optimization. I was optimizing my business. So when I launched Pickup and Delivery, I realized I had spent a couple million dollars buying laundromats, building laundromats, improving infrastructure, and buying new equipment. And I realized I've got a couple million dollar investment here, and you mentioned it earlier, I was doing around three or four turns a day. Because we're in the suburbs of Cincinnati, you know, we're not, we're not downtown New York. And there's limited population here. And I thought, okay, so I have all this infrastructure, and the average commercial washer takes about 30 minutes for a cycle. And if I'm using them four times a day, that's two hours a day. Well, at the time, I was open 24 hours. I was like, there's 24 hours in a day, and my washers are only making me money two hours a day. And I was like, what can I do to utilize that excess capacity? How can I optimize my business to scale my business through vertical integration? And I had the team in place, and all I had to do was figure out the math behind it. And that's kind of where we sit today is even though we could have grown to 10, 15, 20 laundromats, and we could have been operating on this commodity mindset, and it would have served a need we decided to pivot and function in a very different way. And I'm kind of explaining now what I call kind of the bottom of the industry at the top of the industry. And both of them are very good businesses, but one of them is insanely lucrative, like stupid lucrative. And you're serving three, you're basically serving all aspects of your community. You're like you can, the good, better, best type of mentality or the other end of the spectrum is it's a very good business. It's a very solid business, but you're the only way you're going to scale and grow is by spending heavily on marketing and trying to get instead of three or four turns a day, four or five turns a day. And good luck with that because you're limited by the population in that area or go buy more stores. And every time you buy a new store, you have to go borrow a whole bunch of money. Or if you have the cash, you got to spend your own cash. And so because I came from very meager means, I looked at it and I said, okay, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth and I'm not second, third generation. So, you know, mom and dad didn't hand me anything. And so if I want to maximize my potential in this industry and how many people I can serve, I think the best course of action is to do it through what I call business optimization. And that's, that's kind of how we sit today. And the thing I'll tell you is, you know, the whole moniker with laundromat millionaire and everything, I was on a podcast a long time ago. Uh, you probably heard of it, Bigger Pockets. It's a pretty, pretty good sized podcast. And I was on there two or three years ago, and, and one of the hosts referred to me as the laundromat millionaire guy. And it just kind of stuck with me. But the truth of it is, I would be doing very well for myself. I would have left my job. I wouldn't own a business. I would own a job. Okay. If I had never optimized my businesses, I would have never become a millionaire. And so a big part of that like laundromat millionaire moniker isn't like, look at me, I'm a millionaire. It's This is how you become a millionaire. It could apply to any industry, but I know tons of people in the laundromat industry that do really well for themselves, but they're not millionaires. And not that any of us are chasing that title, but the point is they're not optimizing their business. So what I like to tell people is whether you're in the laundromat industry or any industry, in my opinion, the key to a next level of success, even if you've already found success, the key to another level of success that you may not even understand exists typically exist through what I call optimization or, you know, some people call it equipment utilization. You can use a lot of different terms associated with business, but that's where it is. And it's all about, okay, this works really well, but what if there's a better way that I just haven't learned yet? What if I went to a conference? What if I hired a coach? What if I listened to a podcast? What if I read some books instead of just keep rinsing and repeating, you know, no pun intended. <laughs> so that's that's a big part of why I do what I do nowadays with our platform is we try to bring resources to independent laundromat owners, help people get in the industry. We have our own podcast called The Laundromat Millionaire Show. I wrote a book on my story. And the reason I do all those things is I believe that there's specific to the laundromat industry. I believe there's a lot of people in the industry that don't even understand that this is a good business. Like they're not even at the floor. They're in the basement and they don't even realize what they have on their hands. And so I want to kind of help them understand that, you know, I want to inspire people. And then once they reach that floor, I want them to understand it's not the floor. I mean, that is the floor. That's not the ceiling. 
and I want them to see all these other opportunities. Now, if you don't want to run a business with a bunch of employees that's labor-intensive, and you don't want to optimize your equipment, and you don't want to do pickup and delivery and all these different things, that's fine. I'm not here to tell you that's all you can do to be successful. What I always tell people is just use that mindset. Use that frame of reference. And maybe you own a restaurant or a pizza shop or whatever. You say, okay, take let's take these lessons of equipment utilization and optimization and vertical integration and things like that. Shift them into your business model and say, how can I do more with what I already have instead of just going out and buying more? And so that's kind of what we're all about. Yeah, I love it. So final question. If you saw your 16 to 18-year-old self across the street walking <laughs> today, what would you tell that version of Dave? You know what I would tell that version of Dave is, is you're right. The reason I say that is I had so many people, like almost everyone in my life, I had these ideas and theories of what entrepreneurship was and but what business ownership would be. And I knew it was like I knew it would be hard. I knew it would be brutal. I didn't know many entrepreneurs or business owners, but I didn't buy this pipe dream that it was just all, you know, Scrooge McDuck swimming in his money. I didn't believe any of that. But I think a lot of the adults, teachers, mentors, principals, whatever, when they would it was all like you're going to be you're going to either work at Taco Bell your whole life and be a loser and a failure or you need to go to college. And if you, if you don't go to college, you're going to be a loser. Like that's, those are the only two options in life. And in the middle-class world that I grew up in, that's what I was taught. And I never believed it. I never believed these people. I loved them. You know, some of them I loved, some of them I respected, some of them I loved and respected depending on who they were. But the truth is I didn't believe any of them. Like I thought they were all full of crap. That's the truth. And uh, I know that's a little bit blunt, but what I would tell my 16, 18-year-old self is, you're right. You're on the right track. You have the concept down. I had a million things to learn, and there's plenty of things I was wrong about. I'll fully admit that, too. But the overarching concept of entrepreneurship and that I didn't need to go to Harvard to be successful in life, that's a fraud. That's not true at all. You can be successful that way. I'm not here to hate on them, but that's that's the message of what I want to teach people is, like entrepreneurship is brutal. It is like, let's call a spade a spade. It's brutal. But if it's for you, you're totally okay with that. Like you're totally fine with that. You'll find your way. Don't quit. Dig deep in that grit inside of you and just keep plowing away. And the last thing I'll add out there is just put yourself in the way of mentors, whether they're paid mentors, paid coaching, or you just put yourself in the right room, as we always say, listen to podcasts like this. Like even if you listen to this whole podcast and, and nothing that I said made a lick of sense to you, but there was one little what I call golden nugget in this, one little five-second clip that I said that would inspire you or help you find your next level of success, then listening to this whole hour podcast was worth it. Like you pulled a golden nugget out of that. And that's a golden nugget you can put in your tool belt, take with you the rest of your life. And imagine if you did 12, 15, 20 podcast episodes and you pulled 12, 15 golden nuggets. Now, the truth is, you and I know this, we're smiling right now, but you and I both know that most of the time you're probably going to pull more than one, right? In some cases, that podcast might like change your life forever, right? Type of thing or that book or whatever it is. But I always say, worse, if you go to a conference and you spend thousands of dollars flying across the country and spending two days and you get hotel rooms and all these things, if you pull one golden nugget out of that or you build one relationship, you network with one person that gives you one golden nugget, I don't think you understand how valuable that is. And so that's that's why we do things like this. You and I both, right? Yeah, that is amazing. So thank you so much for being a guest and sharing your story. Check out the Laundromat Millionaire podcast. Check out the resources. We'll have them in the show notes. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, Dean. You got it. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and we'll go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com.